We are looking at the way which started in Isaiah, or at least Isaiah mentioned it, that there would be a way through the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And he showed us that it takes us to the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah obviously wasn't quite able to see very clearly what that looked like because he was prophesying well in advance. Mark has the perspective of looking backward and saying, that way was Christ. And like Isaiah prophesied, he begins the gospel with those Isaianic words, uh, make the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. And then he shows us Jesus coming up out of the baptismal waters at the Jordan River, and he's walking the way, he's inviting people on the way. And along the way, he's showing us how to walk on this way. So we see that the way is uncrowded. Because Jesus is about being personal with us. He wants personal relationship. Then we learn that the way is unhurried as he went through the parables of the seed and how seed takes its time to take root and to grow up and to bear fruit. It, it cannot grow too quickly and it cannot be choked by the weeds and it cannot be out where the birds can get it. It needs special soil. So the way is unhurried because God is patient. So we're patient with one another, with our own growth on the way. And then last week we saw that it's an unanxious way. That even when we're on the stormy sea, on the boat, in the middle of that rocky, raucous waves, those rocky, raucous waves, we can find peace because Christ is on the boat with us. Tonight we're looking at the heroic way, and this is the way of power. It's not the type of, I almost called it the unheroic way, because the concept of a hero in common society is not the concept of Jesus as hero. Jesus, in many ways, is the anti-hero who takes the meaning of what it means to be a hero and punches it inside out. He changes the meaning of hero. So we're going to look at two kinds of heroes. And both of these heroes work with two kinds of power. We'll call it hero number one. Hero number one is concerned with outer power. How he appears. What he can show. Hero number two is concerned with inner power. Who he is. The soul. The substance. Hero number one has temporal power. His power is going to wane. It's going to fade. He has to do everything he can to hold it as long as he can. But hero number two, his power is eternal. Because it comes from something that God gives from within. The eternal self, the part of us that will live forever with God. That is what's given power. Hero number one focuses on self. Lifting the self up as the powerful one. Hero number two focuses on the other. That hero seeks to empower others around him, even to the point of making them more powerful than himself. Hero number one focuses on breaking things, breaking enemies, breaking opposition, breaking through. Hero number two focuses on being broken. If there will be any brokenness in the world, this hero says, put that on my account. I will not be the perpetrator of brokenness. Hero number one, ultimately, is wielding a sword and slashing it and pushing his way forward. 
Hero number two is carrying a cross. And rather than thrusting the cross at people, the cross is thrust upon him. It's a very backward way of being a hero. And so in short, you could say that hero number one is into the spectacle. Look what I can do. Look who I am. Follow me. I am worthy of your trust and your admiration. Hero number two is the servant and often gets overlooked and ignored and even kicked around and commanded to do other people's bidding. The spectacle versus the servant. Or Caesar, the king of the world, versus Jesus, the other king of the world. Victor Hugo you guys know, wrote some pretty famous things, one being Les Miserables. In that very book, I came across this recently. Brittany's actually reading the book right now, which is quite an endeavor. I can't say that I am. I got the quote from another book. (laughs) But Victor Hugo says this in Les Mis. He says, A lot of men have a secret monster, an ache that they feed, a dragon that gnaws away at them, a despair that haunts their nights. Such a man looks like any other, comes and goes. You do not know that he has a frightening parasitic pain inside him with a thousand teeth, living inside the miserable wretch and killing him, for he is dying of it. You do not know that this man is a bottomless pit, One where the water is still but deep. From time to time, a disturbance no one can fathom shows on the surface. A mysterious wrinkle puckers up, then vanishes, then reappears. A bubble of air rises and bursts. It is not much, but it is terrifying. It is the unknown beast breathing. That inside the human soul, Victor Hugo writes, is this monster. And sometimes it's belching and we notice it. And sometimes it's just hidden and buried. The true hero is not the one who goes to fight the monster and slay the monster. That external monster is the way we typically tell the hero tales. And that is heroic. And and that's, that's good. But the true hero... The path that Jesus takes says, yeah, that monster will be defeated, but I cannot defeat that monster with the monster's power. For in defeating the monster, the monster's way, I will myself become a monster. What Jesus does instead is he goes a route in which the monster within him is killed by the monster on the outside. He allows the human monsters, the Roman Empire and the Jewish religious leaders, to crucify him on a cross. That's the monstrous deed of humanity. That the creation would kill the creator. He allows himself to be mawed in the jaws of the monster so that the monster will be defeated by killing itself. If you um, are squeamish about blood 
well, the cross is here, but um, you might want to tune me out for 30 seconds. My dad told me about how Native Americans would hunt wolves in colder climates. And that they would, um, I don't know if this is true, and I don't even know where he heard it, but it's a great analogy. They would dip a knife in blood and freeze it. And the wolf would smell the blood, and he would find it, and he would lick it. And of course, he would lick himself to death as he lacerated his mouth. Uh, That is the idea, is that Christ gives himself to the horrible beasts, the cosmic powers, the devil himself, who has his way with him, not knowing that within the cross was the secret weapon that would undo the monster forever. That's what we have going on. And now for us, if we want to walk the way of Christ, we are coming up to a point where Jesus is going to warn us that the way is not easy. To walk the path of Christianity, it will take you to the cross. But we need to see why. And we need to see what happens at the cross. And so Jesus is going to teach the disciples and us three lessons. The same lesson because we need it three times because it is unconventional. We don't want to be the hero who's seen victorious. We don't want to be the hero who is defeated but silently gets up and then serves the world. No one notices that servant except for the few that have eyes to see. So how are we going to be the second type of hero, the servant hero, the one who has enduring eternal strength that gives power to others? How are we going to become that hero? We have to take up our cross and die. We need to be crucified. So Mark chapter 8 Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, how do you like that? (laughs) Spitting on his eyes. He asked him, Do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Turns out, second time is a charm. (laughs) Now, one can wonder, what's up with this? This is a failed miracle. It's the only time we see Jesus having to perform a miracle twice to get it right. Was he tired that day? Did he use the wrong method? Now, please don't think that if Jesus was using some sort of incantation, that can't be it. What's going on? Is there a meaning here? I want you to skip forward to the end of our passage, and then we'll obviously come back and work in order. But if you go to Mark 10, verse 46, you'll see why we're doing these chapters together. Our section opens with the healing of a blind man, and it's going to close with the healing of a blind man. This is Mark's intentional literary arrangement of events so that we see a unit. 
It's going to open with the opening of blind eyes, and it's going to end with the opening of blind eyes. So that's how we're going to know we come to the end. So 1046, they came to Jericho, right outside Jerusalem. They're right about there. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, remember we're doing Mark because it's about the way, and that's 16 times the Greek word hados, which is way, is used. Eight of those 16, half the references of hados, the way, are in our passage tonight. This is the core meaning of what it means to walk with Jesus on the way. This is it. And you see right there, he's sitting by the roadside. That's the word hados. So, Bartimaeus is named. The other blind man wasn't. This blind man has a name. He's sitting along the way. Mark is really trying to get our attention. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said to him, and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, What a tone, what a change of tone here. Oh, uh, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Sorry, we told you to shut up. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. I might be blind, but I know how to find him. And Jesus said to him, What? Do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the hadas. Jesus doesn't even have to touch him, doesn't have to work it twice, doesn't have to spit. This healing is very clean. <laughs> kind of literally, too. <laughs> So, what's going on? So, between these two healing episodes, Jesus is going to take his disciples aside three times and tell them what it means to follow him on the way. Because the disciples don't understand it. And frankly, before we poke fun at them, I don't know that we get it either. I think, you know, I'm going to say all this tonight and we're all going to be, oh, yeah, yeah, we agree with that. That's, that's right. But really, when we think about it, we're not very good at walking the heroic way. Not the way Jesus is describing it. it challenges me, for sure. So, number, uh, episode number one. Right after he heals, we're back in chapter eight. Right after he heals the blind man twice, <laughs> first time kind of worked, second time really worked, we then see in verse 27... Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the Hadas. Okay, first thing I need you guys to know is that in each of these three episodes, it's going to tell us, it's going to specifically reference for us the fact that they're on the Hadas, the way. So you're going to see that actual word show up in all three episodes. Other thing to know is that we're now in the middle of Mark. In the beginning of Mark, Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee doing a lot of things and teaching. 
At the end of Mark, Jesus is in Jerusalem where he's crucified and rises from the dead. In between is the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And it's these three chapters we're covering where the journey occurs. So they are not only on the literal way, the literal path to Jerusalem, but Jesus is going to show us what it means to today follow him on that path to Jerusalem. How do we know we're following him? How do we know we're on the way? He's going to teach us. So he's pointing out. Mark is letting us know. They're on the way. So notice what Jesus teaches and how the disciples react and respond to this. So when he's on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. You can see him seeing like, the New York Times says this, Fox News says that. And Jesus asked them, that's nice, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That's odd. Okay, but keep this in mind. Peter gets it. Jesus is the Christ. But then Jesus says, shh, don't let that get out. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Okay, second thing we're going to see in each of these episodes is that Jesus is going to foretell his death. So he began uh, to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. I love how Mark says that for us. There's no way they could have missed this, he's saying. So when you hear what's about to happen, just give a big old palm, face palm. Oh, how do they do that? Okay, so the third thing we're going to see... First, each episode is going to mention the Hadas, the way that they're traveling. Second, we're going to see Jesus foretell his death in Jerusalem. Third, every single time the disciples aren't going to get it. Here we go. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter knows what he's saying. He said it plainly. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That unruly beast that wants to be the spectacular hero just surfaced in Peter's life. And Jesus identified it as the power of Satan. Why would Peter say this? Why would he rebuke his teacher in front of the other disciples? Why would Peter not receive what Jesus said plainly? It goes back to Peter's answer in 29 when he said that you are the Christ. This is so helpful because we're so used to religious jargon, aren't we? Jesus the Christ, it like almost flies over our head like it's his last name. Christ was a Greek word, and it was the equivalent to this Hebrew word, Mashiach, or Messiah. So when Peter says, you're the Christ, he's actually saying, if you're putting this in Hebrew, he's saying, you are the Messiah. 
Okay, again, some of us like, yeah, yeah, we've heard these terms all the time in the Bible. What does it mean? Well, the Messiah was the anointed one. They called David a Messiah. He was the anointed king. They anticipated, because of the prophets, especially Isaiah, that there would be a new anointed Messiah to come and rule over Israel and to give them a kingdom. No longer will they have to serve Caesar Augustus and the other Caesars, Caesar Trajan and all of them, and pay their taxes. But finally, Jerusalem will be, as Isaiah said, the center of the earth on top of a mountain which all the nations are going to come and worship Yahweh with Israel. That's what they're hoping for in the Messiah. And Peter recognizes you are the Messiah, but Jesus says, shh. Doesn't say you're wrong, but he just says, don't tell people that. Why? Because as long as the beast, the monster, the first type of spectacular looking hero lurks within us, we're never going to understand what it means to have the Messiah. Roughly 150 years before this conversation, check that, roughly 200 years before this conversation, Israel celebrated someone whom they thought was their Messiah. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey because he and his band of guerrilla warriors had just successfully thrown out Greek rulers from Jerusalem. It was awful. I shared this a couple weeks ago. We talked about uh, where the Pharisees came from. Remember the period they were trying to protect themselves against Hellenization, the Greek culture creeping in on them? It was during this time period when the Pharisees were forming. There was a hero who rose up in their midst, Antiochus Epiphany, that ugly, ruthless leader who had killed babies and burned Torahs and, and, and commanded reverse circumcision and outlawed the Sabbath and all these crazy things. He goes to Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He sacrifices a pig on Yahweh's altar, the very animal that Yahweh says is an unclean animal. He sacrifices it there, dedicates it to Zeus, and basically says, from now on, this temple is for Zeus. And the Jews are horrified. So then he begins to demand this to happen everywhere. Offerings to Zeus everywhere. Offerings to the Greek gods. And so his, his, his soldiers go to the town of Modin. And there the priest is commanded to make an offering to the Greek gods. And guess who's there? A guy named Mattathias. And he's watching this and he's zealous for God. He says, this cannot be. And he waits and he sees the priest beginning to offer a sacrifice on the altar a Jewish priest, to a Greek god. And Mattathias loses it. Very much like Moses, he kills the soldiers and then sacrifices the man on the altar and then runs away declaring, whoever's zealous for God and his law, follow me. And from that moment, they live in the hillsides and start this ragtag band of guerrilla warriors, a lot like the American Revolution, really, this, this, this underdog army against this established army, and they little by little start pecking away at the Greeks in Antiochus Epiphany until three years later, throughout the course of this battle, three-year battle, um, Mattathias dies and he gives leadership to his son. His son's name is Judas Maccabee. It means the hammer, Judas the hammer. 
And Judas Maccabee for the next three years will lead these guerrilla warriors and little by little drive these Greeks out. And then, around Christmas time, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey because they're victorious. He goes into the temple and Judas Maccabee cleanses it. This is part of what Hanukkah celebrates. And um, some of the Jews wave palm branches to say thanks for the victory. And then he establishes a kingdom of Jews for the first time since they fell to the Babylonian Empire. Now, it didn't last. You gain the throne in the first type of hero, the spectacle hero. It's going to crumble. It's a temporal power. And it fell apart, and there was infighting once Judas Maccabee died. Generations later, they couldn't agree on who was the next successor, so guess what they do? One of the, one of the sons appeals to Rome, and Rome says, oh, you have a problem? We'll be happy to fix it. And from that moment on, Rome rules Jerusalem, and of course Jesus is underneath the Roman domain. That's the short of it. I tell you all of that, not just because it was interesting or you, whatever, but because when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, he is thinking of Judas Maccabee. We need him to deliver us from them. And so he looks at Jesus with promise. Where are they going? They're on the way to Jerusalem. We know exactly what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to clean the place out. The temple will be rededicated. The Romans will flee because God will finally come to our side like he did in the Exodus. And we will be mighty and we will gain our liberty. And Jesus will sit on the throne and maybe I'll be at his right hand. It was exciting times for their worldview. This is how they're seeing it. Nobody's thinking, oh, yay, the Messiah is here to die. And we're going to have to go into hiding because we're his followers. That is the farthest thing from Peter's mind. So when he says, you're the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus warns him severely, don't tell anybody. We cannot let some zealot fervor go forth where we're going to start to a revolution. That can't happen. So he tells Peter that he's thinking like the first kind of hero, the satanic kind of hero. And I'm not going that route. So where are you going, Jesus? To die in Jerusalem? Now, now look, this is the fourth part of each episode. Jesus is now going to clarify and help the disciples understand their confusion. So, verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Oh, what a letdown. This is why Peter thinks Jesus needs counsel. This is not good PR. Jesus, I'll be your campaign manager. And then Jesus is just saying everything wrong. Verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The short of it means this. I'm going to Jerusalem to die, but be raised. Jerusalem's a place where the cross is the pathway to resurrection. 
The cross gets you to resurrection. Jesus is letting him know, I'm going to die, but I will rise. And if you want to hold on to your life, in other words, if you want to avoid the cross, the discomfort of pain, of suffering, of letting go of yourself, of denying yourself, of becoming the servant, if you want to deny yourself all of that, you will never find your life. Because you'll always be trying to hold on to the little that you have. But if you will go with me to the cross and lose your life, you will on the other side of the cross find life deeper and more thorough and more lasting than you ever had before the cross. But there's only one way to resurrection. And it's the way I'm leading, Jesus tells them. Are you with me or not? Oh my goodness, this must have been so hard for them to hear. I think we're going to see now why Jesus has to tell them two more times the same message. You see, we begin our Christian walk with a decision. It's a decision we make to walk on the way with Jesus. But what Jesus is telling them, because they've already made that decision to walk with him, they've been walking with him for some time, now they're going to Jerusalem and things are going to get real. He now lets them know, okay, great. It starts with a decision, but now it has to become a direction. First, there's a decision we make. I want to walk on the way. Then there must be a direction we take. See, just because you made a decision doesn't mean you're actually walking on the way. It's a direction. It's something that you choose to keep following the footsteps of Jesus, that you will continually choose the cross every time it's before you, rather than, Rather than throwing the arrows and the words and the slander and the hate back at people, that's how we see the world do it, you will take the cross every time. Yeah, we're going to win a lot of converts this way, aren't we? What Jesus is inviting us to is to see, thank you, God, for the substitution of your son on the cross for my sins, that's, a good, that's where we start. But now he's asking, it's another step. Now pray, Lord, help me to enter into participation with your son on the cross. Thank you that he took my place, but now it's time that I join him in that place. That's why he says you must take up your cross and follow me. Okay, so back to the first miracle the man that was blind and half-healed and then whole-healed, he becomes a symbol of us. Because as we walk the way, we're only half-seeing. We're only half-seeing. We don't see fully yet. Because we are resisting the cross, like Peter. We're saying, no, far be it from you. Jesus is letting us know it isn't until we participate with him in crucifixion that we we'll be able to fully see life as he's given it to us. That's what scholars call an enacted parable. Jesus told stories and parables, but he sometimes acted a story or a parable. So he intentionally half heals the man the first time and then the full time so that we recognize ourselves that we, above anything else in life, We need eyes to see the way as Jesus is leading us on it. Because this is so unconventional, so so so-called unheroic, so, if you even say, unorthodox. It's just not the way we normally do things or think. That's lesson one. Lesson two comes in chapter nine. 
verse 30. Nine verse 30. So four things we look for. A reference to the way, a prediction of his death, the disciples' misunderstanding, Jesus is clarifying. They don't always go in the same order, but they're all four should be there. So nine verse 30. And they went out from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. There you go, the prediction of his death. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Remember, So there's a second thing. They misunderstand. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the hadas? There you go, the third thing, the reference to the way. But they kept silent, for on the hadas, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. (laughs) That's a competition. They're gladiators. Who's the most heroic? And he sat them down and called the twelve. Here's the fourth element. He's going to teach them about the way. So he sat them down, called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What? Not another backward way of thinking. Last is first and first is last. So in other words, all 12 are last right now because they were arguing about who's first. And then in verse 36, he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. It's precious. Jesus with a child on his, in his arms. Now, this isn't just to show us the gentler side of Jesus, the empathetic side. Oh, a little baby. He was good with babies and kids. This is far more, this is, this is not cute like that. This is scandalous. Because in this society, kids were considered out of any important person's way. For Jesus to stoop to this child is to actually demean himself. He's doing what he said. He's putting himself last, and he's putting this child first. Um, And in addition, children were always used as an example of the powerless, because children depended on their parents 100%, even more so than today, because today we have teachers and youth pastors and things to help with kids. But back then, it was the family and that was it. They're helpless. Jesus is telling them, look, unlike the other hero who tries to exalt himself over the helpless and distinguish himself to show I'm powerful and I'm self-competent, my type of hero, the servant hero, will pick up the helpless and protect them. Real Christian leadership, which is walking the way, will put their arms around the helpless not push them aside. Third lesson is in chapter 10, verse 32. By the way, there's some interesting things in between, like the Mount of Transfiguration, um, and then Jesus talks about divorce. He talks about 
the rich young man who walks away because he's too rich. And then we're going to see in this passage, he's going to talk about power. So there you have the great classics, sex, money, and power. He's addressing all of those on the way. But that's not for tonight's space. We're going to focus on these three teachings. So in 1032, so you're going to see the four patterns again. And they were on the hadas. It says road in my Bible, but it's still way. It's hadas in Greek. They were on the hadas. So there's one of the four. Going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. Because Jerusalem's just over the ridge. They're excited. Revolutionary fervor is pumping through their blood. And Jesus is walking ahead like, this is it. We are amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Yeah, because it's about to go down. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Like, let me just be super clear. We're not doing any revolution. So verse 33, here's our second element. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. Are you hearing me? (laughs) And the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him. And they will flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So now what do we expect? Huh? Disciples don't understand. Then Jesus will teach them. That's what the rest of these verses cover. So, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, as if they didn't hear a word he said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. I wish we could have captured Jesus' reaction on camera. The eye roll must have been massive. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's referring to the cross, his suffering. And they said to him, like bobbleheads, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. They're going to suffer one day. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But... To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it has, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, footnote is a speculation, but if you're reading within the literature of Mark, he answers who these are that has been prepared for us. Because on Jesus' right and left in his glory, we see who it is right there with him. And it's not James and John. But it's the unnamed thieves on the cross. In other words, if this is indeed Mark's point, he's trying to show us that the cross is the way into glory with him. Now, verse 41. And when the ten heard it, so it's not just James and John, the other ten don't get it either. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. How dare you! There was a pecking order! I was supposed to ask him first! And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The spectacle heroes. 
but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Authentic servanthood right there. Gentile leaders are the first type of hero, the spectacle, the powerful, the outward power, the manifestation, the put your enemies down, draw the sword, prove who's boss. But Jesus says, that's not us. We're the servant. We're kneeling down. We're taking the cross. We're lifting others up. We're not puffing our chests. And by the way, verse 45, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is believed to be a, a pretty loose citation of Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant. At the very end, it has very similar wording, which would then bring us full circle to the way in Isaiah that Mark is showing us Jesus as being the fulfillment. He is the servant leading us on the way. And then we come, we come full circle again, back to the healing of Bartimaeus. Now, Bartimaeus is named because this time, this is the kind of blind man that you want to be. The one who sees fully and follows Jesus. Remember that at the end? Look at 52. And Jesus said to him, Bartimaeus, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the hadas. Bartimaeus becomes the example of who we should be. That is also, and in contrast to James and John, look also how Mark is telling the story. There's a very, very intentional but subtle way he's telling us this. Notice in verse 36, Jesus says to James and John, What do you want me to do for you? Then in verse 51, Jesus says to the blind man, What do you want me to do for you? He asks both the same question. James and John ask like your typical heroic dragon slayer. We want glory and power. The blind man answers the question the same way we should answer it. I want to see. I don't want to miss the way. I want to jump off the roadside and follow you on the way. Yeah, I heard you talk about the cross. If it means the cross, if it means I become a servant, if it means I have to deny myself, if it means some pain, if it means I'm lesser than what I ever, that my, my dad's going to frown upon who I've become, so be it. He does have a dad. His name's Timaeus. So be it. I want eyes to see this path. And so Mark is making it abundantly clear to us, friends, that this is not something that comes naturally. This is why Christianity is so challenging. It's not challenging because we talk about the Trinity or we have these complicated end-time scenarios. It's challenging because of, it, how, of how it asks us to live. You don't wake up this way. We wake up like Peter like James and John, we have our priorities miscued and out of line. 
We look at the cross and we cringe and we think, ew. Because the worst of the worst were put to death on a cross. It's humiliating. And friends, obviously, Jesus is not asking us to take up a a physical piece of wood and nail each other to it. I heard it said actually this week, I think it was last week, it was close enough, that many people are willing to die for their beliefs, but very few are willing to live and suffer for their beliefs. To Jesus, it's far more powerful that we live carrying our crosses rather than actually do execution ceremonies. That's not going to accomplish a lot. But what will accomplish a lot is sisters and brothers and saints and believers walking the path of Jesus like blind Bartimaeus and putting the people around us as the heroes, lifting them up, serving them, not concerned with who I come across as and how my status is doing. So Jesus has been inviting us to answer this question. What do you want him to do? What do you want from him? I think our proper answer is, I want participation. I don't want the cross to be merely a spectator event. I want to join Jesus in it. So I want to close by just pointing out the three commands that Jesus gave us in chapter 8, verse 34. 834, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You could say these are synonymous, and I guess there's a case for that. There's also some value in looking at each one on their own, too. Paul got the the hang of participation. He in Galatians 2.20, Galatians 2.20 is worth writing down, it's worth memorizing, it's worth looking at. This is a very good verse. Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Which is an odd statement because he's usually talking about how Christ was crucified for us. But here in Galatians 2.20, he invites us to participation and says, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that even mean? It means this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in my flesh and blood, this, this, this mass of atoms that was named Paul, actually named Saul, but changed to Paul, this mass of atoms that everybody knows as in one way, is now, oh, the life that I now live in the flesh, that Paul, he now lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave his life for him. So we get concerned. The cross is it's cringe to us when we are living for us. But when we live with Christ in us, the cross becomes a magnet. And it's like, that's home. That's who we are. That's where we are. Because when I take the cross, when I'm crucified with Christ, what happens is Brandon James McCulloch fades from the scene. And now it's Christ that I'm concerned about living in me. 
Brandon is concerned about what you think of him. Brandon is concerned about making sure everything's right. Brandon is concerned about making sure that he does things the way he had hoped to and, and that people love him and that when people attack him, Brandon has to show that he's right or Brandon has to defend himself or Brandon can never be wrong in an argument. But Christ in me looks at the world attacking Brandon and says, it's nice that he's dead and I don't have to feel that. And friends, that's the secret to carrying the cross. Is that you don't have to follow politics or follow the way of politics and attack your accusers. Those are people defending their names. We don't defend our names. We've been crucified with Christ. You can't touch that person anymore. So Jesus says, deny yourself. I see that as a sense of orientation. Denying myself means I no longer start the day with me at the center and wondering how everything works around me. That's default mode. We wake up and wonder how the day is going to affect me. It's about reorienting ourselves to put Christ at the center. And we orient ourselves around him. And by definition, our neighbor and our friends and our enemies, they're all there and reorienting ourselves around them. That's what it means to deny yourself. It doesn't mean, I shouldn't brush my teeth today. I shouldn't eat. That's not denying yourself. It's a reorientation. Second, take your cross. We need to do this intentionally. Choose a way to die every day. Whether it's something that only you know about or it's something you do for someone else, but choose to die every day. And if you have to, just start with a fast that day. That's one way to die. It's hard, but it's going to reshape something. The you is going to be broken, and the Christ in you is going to start to come out. Maybe it's helping someone else. Maybe it's closing your mouth when you want to defend yourself and tell them that they're idiots for what they're saying about you. But choose to die every day. And then third, follow Jesus. This is not all bad news. The cross may hurt, but it is the way, it is the means to resurrection. And the more we take the cross, the more we deny ourselves, the more we follow Jesus, the more we will experience the deep, rich, satisfying, holistic, eternal life he's promised us here and now. That's life we're all missing if we're not willing to participate with Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come to take communion tonight, we have such a great reminder of the heart and soul.